With the election behind us, it's time to step back and take a look at the broader picture of American politics, then fall to weeping quietly before drinking ourselves into a stupor. Basically, Americans are now confronting two conflicting views of economics, foreign policy, and cultural standards. In the Republican view of the economy, freedom is the order of the day. Capitalism ensures that you have the choice to spend your own money on whatever meaningless disposable trinket happens to catch your fancy while putting your kid's tuition on a credit card and paying 22% interest on it until you're so deep in debt that you become a Democrat and go on welfare. In the Democrat view of the economy, the government is here to give you whatever you want so that you're free to use your time to write a poem or hold up a liquor store or share your oxy prescription with your illegitimate child. Now, you may ask Democrats, how are you going to pay for all that? To which they reply, look over there, a man who can't use the girl's bathroom even though he's wearing a dress. And then we argue about that instead. In the Republican view of foreign policy, our nation should never go to war unless we get really angry, and then we should invade a lot of random countries with just enough force to keep the conflict going until Democrats can come to power and surrender. In the Democrat view of foreign policy, our nation should never invade other countries at all so that the evildoers rise to power everywhere and the world devolves into tyranny and chaos until Republicans come to power and get so angry that they invade a lot of random countries until Democrats can come to power and surrender. So basically, both sides can work together on this. Finally, in the Republican view of cultural standards, the old ways are best. Studies have shown repeatedly that the things that make people happy are faith in God, hard work, family, and Xanax, especially when mixed with a king-size blunt. In the Democrat view, these old-fashioned religious values are just remnants of an oppressive system based on mythological belief long ago debunked by science or something that sounds like science or just someone in a white coat saying it's been debunked. If you're a woman, you should feel free to sleep around, then claim you were raped to avoid feeling like a slut, then abort the child you got pregnant with, then demand that the government spend millions researching and curing the unheard of venereal disease you contract so you can get back to sleeping around. If you're a man, you'll be called a rapist and a sexist, but you won't care because you'll be getting so much tail. So it's clear as we look to the future, we're going to have to find a way to reconcile these two visions into a single system of self-destructive dysfunction and rage. To end on an optimistic note, I think we're already well on our way. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. All right, we are here, and it's Mailbag Day. <laughs> All right, it's Mailbag Day. So you have to, you, in order to be in the mailbag, which is a little uncomfortable, but you get to send in your questions too, it, in order to be in the mailbag, you have to subscribe to the site. If you subscribe for a year, you get a month free. It's in a lousy eight bucks a month. You get Ben Shapiro's novel, True Allegiance. This is his first novel, I think. This is his first novel, very entertaining read. And uh, and you get me, and you get Ben, and you can watch the entire show. Otherwise, you're on Facebook and YouTube, and then suddenly darkness descends upon you. Also, uh, my memoir, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, 
is still on sale on as an ebook uh, for two ninety nine. So you can get it. Yeah, it's it's uh, good stuff, especially if you're. Um, thinking about these things. Um, all right. The forecast for the Clavenless weekend is sunny with a chance of leftist tears. I think we'll, <laughs> it's like, it looks like it's going to be whining for, for three days running. Uh, you know, uh, one, one thing I love is that the left always takes things so well, you know, they always take things so calm, uh, so calmly. I, I think we should go right to the core of the leftist establishment and hear from gossip columnist uh, Perez Hilton as he addresses a grateful nation. You are responsible for voting for Donald Trump. I can't believe this. What the fuck? If it were anybody else, anybody, Ted f***ing Cruz, I would have sucked his dick. Anybody but Donald Trump. Oh, I wish it was 2012. Mitt Romney is such a sensible guy. Sensible. Donald Trump had to have his Twitter taken away from him. Oh, my God. I feel I feel for that man. I that is really and then there's all the the celebrities, John Stewart and Lena Dunham and Whoopi Goldberg, Miley Cyrus, Al Sharpton. They all said they were going to move to Canada. They moved. To, how come? How come they didn't say they were going to move to Mexico? What's <laughs> and in Canada they're going like ooh new, you know, <laughs> not not Lena Dunham ooh new. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. This is this is a major, major problem. It's just you know my my favorite tweet. Uh, I have two favorite tweets. The first one, can we put it up so I can read it? This is before. This is Lacey Green, who's a YouTube star, and before the election, before the results come in, she says, regardless of the outcome, we are clearly a deeply divided and broken nation. So much work ahead to mend, heal, and restore the you in USA. And less than four hours later, we are now under total Republican rule, textbook fascism. F you, white America. F you, you racist, misogynist pieces of blank. Good night. <laughs> that was four hours. What a difference four hours make. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. So remember, uh, are you old enough to remember when refusing the out to accept the outcome of an election was an unprecedented attack on our system of government? You know, I mean, the, the moral rules, that was, what was that, 20 hours ago, 24 yeah, hours yeah. ago? Yeah. So the moral rules simply do not apply to the left because they're just so good. They're just so inherently good that whatever they do, it's goodness. So, and, and we are just so very bad that we must be opposed on every... So thousands of people across the country, here's the New York Times, a former newspaper, thousands of people, pretty soon it's going to be a former, former newspaper because I don't know how long they're going to be with us. Thousands of people, if I sound a little gleeful, it's because I'm drinking the tears of leftists <laughs> and it makes me happy. I'm sorry. So thousands of people across the country marched shut down highways, burned effigies, and, and lynched one effigy. Can you imagine what would have happened if they had lynched an effigy of Barack Obama? Lynched, burned effigies and shouted angry slogans on Wednesday night to protest the election of Donald J. Trump as president. The, day, the guy hasn't even done anything yet. He hasn't even, you know, they keep saying, I see on Twitter, it was trending, not our president, not my president, I think, was trending. And they kept saying, when I made fun of them, they all said, well, you did the same thing with Barack Obama. I thought, 
nobody did that. You know, we protested the things he did, protested Obamacare. We did protest Obamacare. We did protest, uh, you know, the Iran deal and things like that. But nobody protested the fact that he was elected, you know? I mean, gosh, these guys are so, it's so, it's so entitled to think that you're supposed to win every election. The demonstrations fueled by, so, you know what this means? Donald J. Trump, when he gave his acceptance speech, was gracious, he was inclusive, he didn't, he didn't go back to some of the things that divided people, he only mentioned the things he thought everybody would agree on. This means that these protesters have less class than Donald Trump. I, mean, I want each and every one of you leftists out there to look in the mirror and say, and point at that face that's looking back at you and say, you have less class and graciousness than Donald J. Trump, and, and live with that. All right, here's, here is one pleasant protester who was interviewed by CNN in the midst of her, her rage. Lily, your sign tonight says... Um, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. If, if we don't fight, who's going to fight for us? People had to die for freedom where we're at today. We can't just do rallies. We have to fight back. There will be casualties on both sides. There will be because people have to die to make a change in this world. But Trump, enough with your racism. Stop splitting families. Let, don't split my family. And you're fearful that you're going to lose friends and relatives to deport? Oh, yeah, a lot. Friends, family, even all races. Not just my Hispanic culture, but the rest of the races. Don't take away our rights. You know, you impeach Donald Trump. That's what he needs to get, yeah. impeached. So if she's going to lose parts of her family to de deportation, it's because they're here illegally, right? So, so like, instead of instead of doing what she could reasonably do in a country this generous, this kind, this unracist, which is begging for mercy, instead of saying yes, we broke the law, but give us a break because now we're here and boo hoo hoo, you know, which which even even we on the right would probably respond to. Instead, she's going to kill people to protect her right to break our laws. <laughs> you know, it's like I mean, no one is more entitled than people who know that they have done the the wrong thing. But you know. How can people not be upset? How can people not be upset? This is all on the media, our old friends, the mainstream media. Listen, listen to Van Jones on CNN. This is, going, this is a, meme, a meme, an idea that's going around, is how are we going to tell our children about Donald Trump, the LA Times, how to break this to your children? First of all, why should we be helping you raise your children? Raise your own damn children, you know? <laughs> you can't figure out how to tell them somebody got, you know, a president. Tell them, tell them it's a new, you know, last time we had a black, the first black president, now we have the first orange president. It's a wonderful, accepting country, okay? So here's Van Jones, the broken-hearted Van Jones, a man who supported a cop killer. Remember that guy whose name I can't pronounce? Guy's on death row, and he was telling us what a wonderful fellow this guy was for killing a cop. Here's Van Jones. How is, how is he going to break it to them? After he breaks it to them that he supports killing murdering police officers. How is he going to break it to him that Donald Trump is the president? People have talked about a miracle. Uh, I'm hearing about a nightmare. Uh, it's hard to be a parent tonight for a lot of us. Uh, you tell your kids, don't be a bully. You tell your kids, don't be a bigot. You tell your kids, do your homework and be prepared. And then you have this outcome and you have people putting children to bed tonight and they, they're afraid of breakfast. They're afraid of how do I explain this to my children? I have Muslim friends who are texting me tonight saying, should I leave the country? I have uh, families of immigrants that are terrified tonight. This was many things. I, 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 this was a rebellion against the elites. 
True. It was a complete reinvention of, of, of politics and polls. It's true. But it was also something else. We've talked about race. I mean, we've talked about everything but race tonight. We've talked about income. We've talked about class. We've talked about region. We haven't talked about race. This was a white lash. White lash. It's a white lash. So I have a lot to say about this white lash business because this is what is ginning people up. It's, it's this idea that any, uh, any notion that they disagree with, any politics they disagree with, is hate. And they said it about Mitt Romney and they said it John McCain. They may have a case against Donald Trump, but they always say it. So they have no so they're just the, the people who cried wolf here. So first of all, if you are if you insist, as the left insists, that everything is about race, that everything is about you're black and I'm Hispanic and this one is this and this one is that, how on earth can you say to white people you can't vote your race? Where is your moral authority to say that you can't vote your race? So here is NBC continuing this white lash. This is their new thing, their, their little idea that they've come up with. Here is NBC covering this, going out and covering the awful effects on our country of white lash. Outside the nation's African-American History Museum, there's deep worry about President-elect Donald Trump's victory and the huge turnout by rural, working-class, white voters. How much is it about race? I mean, Trump has made the whole election about race, so about 100% of it. I'm not angry, you know. Uh, I'm hurt. I'm hurt because um, it says a lot about America. They see what's been called a white lash. White Americans feeling left out and deep resentment as the nation grows more diverse. Rallied by a candidate who promised to ban Muslims, wall out Mexicans, and who challenged the very legitimacy of the nation's first black president. For 16-year-old Valerie Travi, who was born in the U.S., this election seems more like an eviction. Her undocumented parents were deported back to Colombia 10 months ago. With Clinton, she saw hope. With Trump, helplessness. Donald Trump deported her parents 10 months ago. That's awful. Donald Trump deported, went back in time to become president in the past and deported her children, her parents. That armed son of a gun. I cannot believe that he would do, oh, wait. Uh-oh, <laughs> what the hell is she talking about, you know? <laughs> her parents were deported under Barack Obama because they were here illegally. And this thing, you know, let's, let's take a look at some of this. They said he wants to ban Muslims, which he said he took back. He, you know, morphed from that, as he put it, for, into keeping, you know, Muslims out, vetting them, ex extreme vetting, as he called it, which of course we need. Of course we need to extremely vet people from Muslim countries to make sure they don't want to kill us, you know? That's, that's not, not a big thing. And he, and he said he wanted to wall out Mexicans. He wants to wall out Mexicans? I, I mean, Trump didn't even say that. He wants to wall out illegals. He wants to enforce our laws about the border. I got a lot more to say, and, and the mailbag, but you got, if you're on Facebook and YouTube, we're going to cut you off like the cheap SOBs you are because you haven't given us your lousy eight bucks. But you can come to thedailywire.com and listen to the rest. So what is missing? What is the little secret sauce that was missing from this accusation of racism? Data. It's data. What, on what basis are they accusing these voters this, this is the thing that get, these guys, you know, the New York Times yesterday said this was a humbling rebuke to the media. 
if the, it's a humbling rebuke, maybe the media should be more humble. Maybe they should examine the fact that they are saying these things about people without any data. You are accusing voters of racism and misogyny without any data whatsoever. Just because a white person votes for a white person, you know, does not make, just because a man votes for a man doesn't make him misogynist. Just because a white person votes for a white person doesn't make him racist. This, these are assumptions, the conclusions that you are leaping to out of the meanness of your own heart because you make everything out, out to be race. David French in NRO says, if the data supports the assertion of racism, we shouldn't shrink from it. Indeed, the notion that identity politics from the left is being met with identity politics from the right is nearly received conventional wisdom, as is the notion that our nation is more racially polarized than any time in recent memory. But maybe not. The exit polls are remarkable. Would you believe that Mitt Romney won a greater percentage of the white vote than Donald Trump? Mitt took 59% while Trump won 58%. Would you believe that Trump improved the GOP's position with black and Hispanic voters? Obama won 70 You know, here, here's the thing. The polls show that people like Barack Obama. I mean, he's up in the 50s in popularity. They like him. They like the guy. A lot of these people who voted for Donald Trump voted for Barack Obama twice. A lot of these people out in the, out in the boondocks, who are the people who are the, the white working class everybody's talking about, they voted for him twice. They voted for him twice. They're still telling pollsters they like the guy. They don't like his policies. They don't like his policies. You know, shouldn't you assume that's true? Shouldn't you just assume that someone you do, don't know, it, when he takes an action, that he's acting on good and reasonable and motives and logical motives? Shouldn't you assume that about somebody? Shouldn't you have to? Shouldn't it have to be proved to you that somebody is acting out of hate? But not the media. Not the media. They make everything out to be race. Here is the best analysis of this election so far. It's from Dan Henninger. Well, the thing I like about Dan Henninger is he's not flashy, but he just kind of brings this sort of, you know, calm uh, assessment of what's going on. And here is Dan Henninger, an editor at Wall Street Journal, discussing what happened in this election. In a normal election, a, 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 a candidate with his, don't, who had done as many outlandish things as Donald Trump probably would have lost. He won because the American electorate looked past his personality, looked past Hillary's, and they were focused like a laser on what was really important right now, and that's the direction of the country. It's about the economy, it's about our politics, and it's about our culture. I think that is adds up to what people meant by the country going in the wrong direction. If the country is going in the wrong direction in November 2016, what might be the reason for that? And the reason was that people have been living for eight years under the Obama presidency. I mean, the Democrats have to face the reality that Obama lost the election for Hillary Clinton. We are now up to virtually 2,900 days of the Obama presidency. It has been a moribund, tepid economy. People feel that every day in their lives out there, in areas where jobs and so forth have been uh, lacking. So I think Democrats have to understand that while they argue Republicans have a problem with minorities, with blacks and Hispanics, the Democratic Party has a problem with millions and millions of American citizens who did not vote for their candidate. There it is. There it is. The Democrats failed for eight years. They put up a bad candidate who was just going to continue, had no new ideas. The people voted him out for the Republican in spite of the fact that the Republican was outlandish. Nobody liked his outlandishness. Nobody liked his, his boorishness. Maybe some people did. I shouldn't say nobody. But the majority of people would not have voted for this boorish guy who was saying the stuff he was saying, except they wanted a change. It's the left that makes 
everything about race. It's the media, which is the left, that makes everything about race. But it's okay because it's good racism when they do it. It's good, ra it's, it's good racism against the bad racism. Ours is bad racism, theirs is good racism. That's how you can tell. There's a G in front of their racism. It stands for good, you know? The good, it's G racism. Ours is B racism. B stands for bad. What nonsense, but listen, I'm drinking their tears. I'm feeling their pain. It is like a creamy sauce that I pour all over my, my the meat of my victory. Uh, so, <laughs> so here we go. Into the mailbag. Yay! Yeah. Lindsay. <laughs> we, should, we shouldn't call that a woo-hoo. We should just call it a Lindsay at this point. Yeah. All right. From Lucas Hood. Do you think we will see a rise in bigotry and intolerance with Trump as president, or do you think we will see more rational arguments if Trump is in charge and political correctness on the decline? Really, that's a really interesting question. You know, I, I think, here, here's the thing, the way the left always works, they always do this, is they take a kernel of good thing, they take a, a mustard seed of a good thing, and they blow it up into a philosophical atrocity, okay? Everybody, everybody should be polite and tolerant of their neighbor, no matter what color. This is America. He can be whatever color he wants to be. He can be whatever religion he wants to be. You should not behave like the New York Times and assume people are bad simply because of the way they look. If you act that way, you belong on the left. If you act that way, you can get a job at the New York Times, but you're a slime ball, like the people who do that at the New York Times, okay? So there's always a kernel of good. Political correctness is one of the most oppressive things that has ever come upon this country. Country. I mean, I would, you know, if I had to choose between political cor correctness and the internment of Japanese during World War II, it would, I would be hard-pressed to say which is a greater atrocity. Political correctness is a, a, an enslavement of the mind. It's an enslavement of people at the place where they think and the place where they speak, and it needs to go away. The thing that we don't want to do is we don't want to throw away the decent kernel of, of the kernel of decency that is at the heart of political correctness, the, the, the thing that the left used to establish this tyranny, because they always use a good thing. They always use a kernel of a good thing. One of the problems I had with Donald Trump, during, especially during the primaries, was that people were saying he was politically incorrect when he was just being rude and unkind, you know, and that's the thing. So to answer the question, do I think we'll see a rise of bigotry and intolerance? I think that as if, if Trump succeeds in pushing back political correctness, which I think would be possibly the next to the Supreme Court, possibly the greatest thing that Donald Trump could accomplish in his presidency. If we see that, yes, it is going to allow certain people to say things, certain people who are bad people to say things that they should not say and to express ideas that they really should not only keep to themselves, but should go to church and get rid of. I mean, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. That is going to be a small number of people. This is, I have lived out of this country, this is the least racist country on earth. The least racist country on earth. If you made a list of racist countries, the one at the bottom would be this country. This is the least racist country on earth. We deal with more races, more number, greater numbers of races living closer together than really anywhere besides some of maybe Brazil. And this is the least racist country on earth. So the majority of people are going to shut those people down. I am not afraid. I despise the alt-right and their casual anti-Semitism and even their ironic anti-Semitism. I despise them for 
they are going to be shut down, I believe, by the inherent decency in most Americans. So, yeah, are we going to see more of it? It's going to, it's going to rise up. And, of course, the press is going to you know, jump on it every time they see it. But, but I'm not worried about that. I think political correctness needs to be destroyed, even if it has certain bad uh, ramifications. From Ricardo Benavides. Benavides. Uh, greeting Overlord Clavin. I, I, just, I just appreciate people using my proper types. I'm curious as to what your thoughts on aliens are. How well do you think they work in fiction? Do you think they exist in real life? You know, one of the things that uh, is, is really interesting to me is I, I think that the solution to many of our problems lie in outer space, lie in the colonization of the solar system, and then whatever else we can start to reach after that. I know right now that's a physical impossibility, but who knows what comes next. But of course, when you talk about space and space exploration and space colonization, especially if you're a candidate, you sound like a lunatic. You know, you sound like a lunatic because it's offbeat, offbeat, and you sound like a lunatic when you talk about aliens. But the odds are the incredible odds are incredibly in favor that somewhere out there, there's somebody, yeah, because there's so much space, there's so much uh, space, so many stars, you know, just the odds. I mean, Carl Sagan, I think, once calculated the odds. I can't remember what the numbers were, but they were very high that some of these, um, some of these planets are inhabited. And I think that that's, so I think that's probably true. The question is, are the distances so great that they can't be breached. That's the real question. Are the distances between the planets so great that they simply cannot physically be breached by any means at all except multi-generational travel? As for fiction, I love fiction about aliens. It's really interesting. The one thing I don't like about fiction about aliens is this, though. If aliens have the technology to bridge the distance between planets, they'd be really, really sophisticated. And you know, intellectually. And it's just hard to imagine that that level of sophistication would come along with being just monsters who just show up and blow everything up, you know? <laughs> so, like, I've, always, I've always appreciated it. I have, I have uh, screening tickets this week for Arrival uh, this weekend, so I'm hoping to get to that. And uh, that looks like a very intelligent version of this. I really prefer things uh, when they use aliens in fiction. I prefer it to be a little uh, more subtle. From Armand Anderson. Did I answer all those questions? Yes, I did. Armand Anderson, Hola Don Clavanos. I think that is my proper title in, uh, in Spanish. Yeah. In your book, you talked about a few early career mistakes as a young author. That was a kind, that's a kind way of putting it, a career mistake. Could you advise, this was my book, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. Uh, could you advise a few do's and don'ts for writers just starting out? Sure. Um, the, the important thing as you go forward as a writer is, first of all, to know what you want to, to accomplish. Do you want to be a literary writer? Do you want to be a, uh, an entertainment writer? Uh, do you want to write trash? Uh, you know, I mean, you can, write, you can write porn. You can have any kind of life as a writer, and each one of those is a different career path. I chose, I wanted to write really high-quality, original uh, um, action fiction, entertainment fiction. I wanted to write things that people would like reading, but that had a kind of depth and, um, uh, and quality to them that other fiction in the genre uh, often doesn't have. Not all of it. Some of, some of our genre fiction is the best writing out there, but I wanted to be one of those guys who was in the best, that quality. To do that, uh, you have to learn your trade, and that begins with learning grammar. And the first thing I tell every writer, every young writer, is get yourself a workbook that, has, that will teach you a course in grammar and do the workbook from page one to the end. Now, I was lucky. In seventh grade, I had one of those teachers that everybody hates who drills that stuff into your head. But 
if you don't have that, you will look like an idiot. And the people who read, read. You know, the people who read know what English sounds like. And so when you send it to an editor, when you send it to an agent, you know, it's going to make you look dumb if you can't write a letter without a dangling participle. If you don't know what a dangling participle is, get that book because you got to find that stuff out so you know what you're doing. That's the first thing. Learn your tools. Learn your tools. Second thing, read. And don't just read the stuff you like. Read the stuff you want to write. You know, that's important. But also read classic fiction. There's, like, you can get a list online or anywhere of 100 great books that everyone should read. You should read all 100 of them. The reason is... You're in a tradition, you know? I mean, I, I work in Hollywood sometimes, and I'll talk to some young person who's never seen Gone with the Wind or never seen The Godfather, and you think, like, hey, if you work in the business, not everybody has to watch old movies, but if you work in the business, you should know that stuff. You should really have a quality education in your field uh, to know what you're doing. Listen, can you write trash and make a billion dollars without doing any of this stuff? Yes, you can. God bless you. Go ahead. But I don't know how you do that. And the last thing is, is you know... It, Contacts are important in any business, but don't spend your life looking for contacts. You can get an agent. You can get an agent without getting contacts. Agents still read stuff that comes over the transom, stuff they get by queries. Find out how to do that. There's a book called Writer's Market that'll teach you. There are all these online um, sites that'll tell you how to do it. So, so you know, that's, that's what I would say. I would say learn grammar, read constantly and deeply and broadly in your field, uh, and then and then go out and get an agent. And don't waste too much of your time trying to get writers to have lunch with you. They don't want to have lunch with you. Don't write to me and ask me to read your stuff. I'm not going to read your stuff. I can't. I you know I, I would just if I answered all that I would be doing it all the time. Learn to do what you want to do really really well. And I think you you can succeed. You can succeed. It's an awful business. I have to tell you, it's a wonderful wonderful job, but it's an awful business. I love doing. I love writing, but. Um, Publishing is another thing, and it's in, it's in free fall, and it's changing because of electronic media, but still, you can still do it. One more. Jack F. Supreme Leader Clavin. Thank you. How much longer do you think it will take to stop or ban abortion, and how much longer after that will the next great moral problem arise? Does answer the second part first instantaneously. There's always a great moral problem arising. I don't think uh, we're going to ever see a, a true ban on abortion until science gets us to the point where we can no longer deny that a child in the womb is a baby. You know, science will get us to that point, I hope, but until that time, I don't think we'll see a real ban. What I think we need to do is I think we need to repeal Roe v. Wade and then let each state argue it out on, on their own. Let each state decide what they want to do. And, and then, you know, we have to win the moral argument. I'm, I'm not even as concerned about the legal state, uh, although I think our legal state is barbaric. I think the fact that uh, you know, a, a mainstream candidate like Hillary Clinton could be arguing for partial birth abortion for killing babies that if they were born the next day would be viable. I think that that just shows you the way that savagery leads to more savagery, the way that bad moral logic leads to evil, essentially, if you keep following it down that path. Um, but but I, I, what I think if in the near future, in the living future, what we could see is a repeal of Roe v. Wade and then let each state work it out. And then we have to just keep making the moral argument, not like you, you're evil, you're going to hell, you're damned if you do this because God's forgiveness is bigger than your sin. You know, that's not the point. The point is people, people do not want to do the wrong thing if they can help it. I think you can make that, uh, make that argument. I think we can make that argument. And I just think repealing Roe v. Wade, would help because it would start the debate again. I'd rather have the debate. You know, I want to have the debate. 
All right, let me just end quickly on two stories that I saw on Drudge. Uh, paralyzed people could walk again instantly after science developed a brain, scientists developed a brain implant which turns thought into electrical signals in the spine so that lost feeling can be restored after injury. So they just implanted this thing and you break your back and you lose your legs and this will connect you to your legs again. And a plastic surgeon in China has successfully grown an artificial ear on a man's arm in a pioneering medical procedure. The patient, surnamed G, lost his right ear in an accident, and the doctor used Mr. G's cartilage from his ribs to build the new ear, and he expects to transplant the organ from the guy's arm back onto his head in about four months. We are living in a world of wonders. You know, we get so tangled up, and this one said this one in the, you know, the, the political world, that we forget. You know, this is a world of wonders. The Clavenless weekend now begins. I cannot even imagine what is coming, but uh, hopefully it will involve the tear and su tears and suffering of leftists. I'm, I'm partly joking about this, by the way. Most leftists are, most Democrats are incredibly nice people who just disagree with us. It's these people, these children, and most of them are children. By the way, a lot of them won't have time to protest under Donald Trump because they'll have jobs. So <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be an improvement. Uh, but we will see you again on Monday. It has been a good week, an exciting week. Freedom is as so entertaining. Freedom is so much more entertaining than slavery because anything can happen and anything has. I'm Andrew Claven. This is the Andrew Claven Show. We will end with stuff I like from the inimitable Bob Marley delivering the message of the week. About a thing